0: This is Bigger Questions, with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's show is part two of our exploration of the big question, how historically accurate are the Gospels? We're asking this big question to Professor Craig Evans. Craig is a New Testament scholar, a prolific author, and a popular speaker. He's well-known for his contribution to work on the Gospels, the historical Jesus, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and archaeology of the New Testament. Now, in part one, we discussed archaeology, the authorship of the Gospels, and if the Gospels contained eyewitness testimony. We also considered the actual manuscripts themselves and how long they lasted. So we'll kick off part two this week, exploring more about the manuscripts which are used to form the basis of our modern Bibles today. I asked Professor Evans if the manuscripts which have survived and are used to form the text of our Bibles could have been copied from the original autographs themselves, or are they more like Chinese whispers, which were developed, embellished, and changed over centuries so that the manuscripts which have survived bear no resemblance to what the original authors penned and hence can't be trusted?
1: Uh, You're quite right. Um, When you realise how long they last... Uh, The actual manuscripts that we have, we have some small fragments that date to the second half of the second century. So the autographs by that point uh, might still exist. But uh, we also have uh, fairly substantial portions of the New Testament text that date to the first half of the third century. And so autographs, like take Tertullian again. If the autographs of most of Paul's letters are still floating around in the 190s, uh, then, then the copies we do have, like say P46, Papyrus 46, which is in the Chester Beattie, uh, library in Dublin, Ireland. When Chester Beatty was written down, we think somewhere between 200 and 240 AD, there's a distinct possibility that that author had access either to the autographs or to a copy made from the autograph. So the idea that When you get to what we actually have today in our museums, there's 10 generations or 15 generations, you know, your Chinese whispers between the original and what we have. There's no reason to think that the autographs remained uh, in circulation. The other thing to keep in mind is that the autographs don't get copied just once. And that's it. It's like, oop, that's it. You know, we copied it, you know, Paul's Romans, we copied a new one in 75, can't do it again. It they, The autographs would get copied repeatedly in the first century on in the second century until whenever they ceased to exist. And so they're injecting, you might say, a first generation copy on again and again and again, not just once. And so that's why I say it's possible that when somebody sat down to write what we call P-46, uh, a collection of most of Paul's letters, uh, what could be right on his table is a tattered copy of the autograph itself, but this tattered copy might have been made in the year 150, might have been made in the year 130, who knows.
0: Now, the message of the historical Jesus is summarized in the the book of Acts, where in a speech the Apostle Peter says in Acts 2, 22 to 24, he says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, this passage summarizes many of the key issues connected to the historical Jesus, his existence, his miracles, and his death and his resurrection. Yet today it is popular to claim that Jesus was just a legend and never really existed as a real historical person. So was this Jesus of Nazareth a real historical person? Well, certainly. And uh, the overwhelming
1: majority—I can't give you a percentage, it would be over 99 percent—the overwhelming uh, majority of trained uh, historians, real historians, say, of course he existed. Some of these historians might be atheists, but they don't doubt that there was a Jesus of Nazareth. And by the way, uh, the majority of historians would also say that Jesus did things that people observed, which they from their point of view, could only be interpreted as a miracle, and I think that's a very important point to make. Um, Some people get this confused that as a historian, I or someone else, I'm trying to make a scientific claim about miracles. You know, that's, you need to know, I mean, as a Christian, I believe that miracles did occur, but as a historian, I say what happened, Jesus, the real Jesus, the Jesus of history, did things that people observed that astounded them. Mm. And I don't see these people as stupid. Some of them might've been uh, ignorant. Some of them might've been prone to uh, believe almost any rumor or anything they hear. I mean, people are like that today. They'll hear the biggest and silliest nonsense. And by the way, nonsense can be skepticism too. You know there are people running around saying that uh, no astronaut ever walked on the moon. Well, that is really silly. Or mm. the CIA uh, attacked and destroyed the uh, the, the towers. Center. Yeah, the Trade Center in New York. I mean, you got to be kidding me.
0: And they That's think skepticism, though, I suppose, isn't it?
1: Yeah, they think they're skeptical, and a lot of people think if you're skeptical, you're critical. If you're skeptical. You know, you're a real critical thinker, you know, and you demand evidence. Well, you can be profoundly naive in the other direction, where the evidence is more than sufficient, but you are so committed to a strange ideology or as odd worldview that, uh, you know, you, you embrace the dumbest uh, interpretation of the evidence. So I think I've, I've, I've seen historians, this would include Jewish historians, who say, you know, I don't know what to make of Jesus, but he clearly did do things. He taught Hmm. things and he did things that impressed his contemporaries. And I'm not gonna write off all of his contemporaries as a bunch of ignoramuses who don't know anything. Hmm. So that's the right approach to miracle. You can Hmm. go beyond that and say, okay, well then what does all of this mean? Here's somebody whose teaching was riveting uh, and, and you look at Jesus' teaching, I mean, he's ahead of his time by, you know, centuries and centuries. Mm. His teaching is still transformative. That's a very important point to make. So he's not just some, you know, uh, Swami who has a few ideas 2,000 years ago that are quaint today, utterly irrelevant, have no application, in fact would be judged harmful. No! Jesus' teaching is still cutting-edge, transformative, and most people would agree, gosh, if everybody did what Jesus taught, the world would be at peace and full of harmony and so forth. So you look at that and you begin that I'm shifting into a new criterion, which evaluates the results, the fruit of the tree. Is the fruit good? Actually, it is. And so it's an argument from pragmatism. So did Jesus do things? Yes. What Were people in antiquity astounded by it? Yes. They said things like, we've never seen this before. So what was Jesus doing? Well, look at the results also. Then you can, of course, mm. talk about the resurrection mm. and on we go, And which is why you know, there are over two billion people who uh, identify themselves as
0: Christians. Mm. Well, as you mentioned here, Peter, Peter does claim here that Jesus did miracles, wonders, and signs. But weren't there other ancient miracle workers in the ancient world, people like Apollonius of Tyana, for example, uh, so how does the um, miracles of Jesus compare to these other ancient miracle workers of the ancient world?
1: Well, I'd say two things. One, why don't you read them? And uh, it's gimmickry is what you mostly see. Uh, sensationalism. You have one or two uh, examples that would be somewhat Jesus-like. But for the most part, Apollonius of Tiana appears to be kind of a, a showman, a P.T. Barnum. By the way, he's <laughs> evaluated that way. Yes, he's evaluated. Lucian, I've mentioned Lucian already, Lucian of Samosata, uh, he writes a scathing review of Apollonius of Tiana and one of his later disciples, Alexander the False Prophet, as he calls him, and he sees them basically as hacks, con men, fraudsters. But um, even so, let's just, we'll, I'll stay away from that, just look at what he does. What is the actual account that we have? You know, Philostratus is the one that gives us the really nice, positive account. Philostratus is writing his Vita Apolloni, his Life of Apollonius. He writes it for uh, a woman in the emperor's court who is very pro-pagan and anti-Christian. And so we suspect that uh, Philostratus is aware of the Gospels knows the Jesus stories, the miracles that Christians talk about. And there's a little bit of one-upmanship here. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, well, you know, your Jesus did that, did this. Yeah, well, Apollonius did the same thing. So you get a little bit of that. I think that's going on. And we're talking about the 220s, 230s. We're talking a long time removed. Apollonius supposedly died uh, in the 90s when uh, Emperor Domitian uh, was still living, and he was assassinated, you know, in 96. So sometime in the late first century is when Apollonius dies. And so here's somebody writing his life 130 years later. <laughs> he seems to be mimicking the, uh, the testimonies of the cult of Asclepius. He's mm-hmm. doing a little bit of one-upmanship with Jesus and the Gospels. And even so, you read them and go, oh, my goodness, it comes across as gimmickry, a lot of it. Mm. And you don't have that with Jesus, you know? Jesus is not saying, hey, I can really stun you. Watch this. Jesus, he's not into smoke and mirrors. There is no gimmickry with Jesus. He has compassion mm. for people. He lays his hands on somebody. Somebody begs him for his eyesight. He says, you know, can you make me see? I can, I will, and the guy can see. And people go, Wow! We've never seen anything like it. You don't have that with Apollonius. It's a whole different thing.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, the passage from Acts also speaks about Jesus' death uh, by nailing him to the cross. So, how does the archaeological evidence for Jesus' death stack up? Because some have claimed that the death, uh, his removal from the cross, and the burial of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels inaccurately portrays what would have likely occurred at crucifixions in ancient Palestine under Jewish law.
1: No, there's not a thing with it that's uh, inaccurate. Again, the archaeologists who know their stuff, know about uh, Jewish burial practices, Roman uh, crucifixion, execution, and so on, in Israel in the first century, they give high marks to the Gospels. I I can actually, uh, if you give me a minute, I'll pull the book down off the shelf and read to you Jody Magnus. Jody Magnus is is a woman, a Jewish archaeologist at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She says the Gospels have it right at every point. Archaeology and Jewish law and culture and tradition support everything the Gospels say. And that includes uh, not just the, the the brutal crucifixion of Jesus and the other two men, but the fact that they would be taken down. And Josephus says that. He, you know, He says, why even malefactors who were crucified are taken down from the cross and buried. And he says that in a context where uh, Jewish rebels murdered some hated Jewish priests and threw their bodies out unburied. And he said, that's an outrage. We do not do that. And he's talking about a time when it was Roman authority. Only Rome could execute anybody. So it's the Romans who have crucified people, and yet their bodies are buried. And if you know Roman law, and not everybody does, but in the digesta that was compiled in the 6th century, the Roman law that's quoted is 1st century. It actually comes from Caesar Augustus in his vita, his life that he finished writing in the year 13, then he died the following year, plus some other jurists of the first and second centuries. And they all say uh, that the bodies uh, of people who have been put to death, uh, if request is made, can be taken down and buried, but request has to be made. And that's exactly what you see in the Gospels. Joseph Arimathea has sympathy. The Jewish law says if we condemn somebody, the Sanhedrin condemns somebody to death, it's on us to bury him. Not an honor, that is not allowed, but in a a tomb set aside for these kind of people.
0: Mm.
1: And that's what the Gospels say. The Gospels are right on. The Gospels are not wrong on any point touching the archaeological evidence and everything we know from Josephus, other historians and sources.
0: Mm. Now, this passage also references Jesus' resurrection. Now, this is the most significant historical event of the Christian faith, but is this just a faith statement, or are there reasons to believe that it's an historically accurate claim?
1: Well, there has to be something behind it, and I'll tell you why. Uh, you have various charismatic leaders that drew crowds. Josephus tells us about many of them, and promising to do this and show a great sign and so on. And you can see the correlation where people come to Jesus and say, what big sign do you show us? And Jesus I'm not showing you any sign except, you know, the sign of Jonah. And so you can see Jesus fits into that category. But um, uh, what makes it different in this case, the the other charismatic guys are killed, and that's the end of it. Thutis is captured and beheaded. Uh, The Jew from Egypt who led an insurrection, this is mentioned uh, not only by Josephus, but also in the book of Acts. uh, his, His group is destroyed by Roman troops on the Mount of Olives. He sneaks away either escapes or his corpse was unidentified anyway, never got his name, all of these movements disappear. Nobody comes forward and says, wow, Thutis appeared to me, resurrected. He looks great. I'm I'm all excited now. That never happens. There are stories in the rabbinic literature of rabbis, like Akiba, famous rabbis who are martyred. Again, nobody comes forward and says, Akiba appeared to me in a vision, you know, and, and broke bread. And I realized he's been resurrected. The important point is, is that the Jewish people, they had their ghost stories. They had they had ideas of, of visions. Uh, Rhoda sees what she thinks is the ghost of Peter. Of course, it wasn't. It was Peter. And, and you have in Jewish literature, you have Jeremiah appears to somebody and encourages them. Nobody runs around and says, holy schmoly, Jeremiah's been resurrected. Why do they say that about Jesus? See, that is to me very intriguing. Mm. Why, Why wasn't it just, hey, I had a vision. Jesus appeared to me. I feel so comforted. It's so good to know that he's at the right hand of our heavenly father, that his teaching has been validated. If that's all it was, Jesus just poof, there he is for a moment, and this person sees him, That uh, who would have spoken of resurrection? So there had to be something tangible, something artifactual to make them talk about resurrection and not simply ghost appearances. In a mm-hmm. debate I had with skeptic John Dominic Cross, and I said, Dom, explain to me, why do we have Easter instead of Halloween, why do we talk resurrection instead of a ghost story? And and an argument for that is, it's because the tomb was empty. Mm. The the grave cloths were there. And when they saw Jesus, and and unlike a ghost, he sits down and eats bread, and there's a lot of evidences that convince them. Mm. These are not mere visions. We should be talking
0: about resurrection. So what did John say to your response about Halloween versus Vista?
1: <laughs> I think I'm the only person who ever debated him and left him speechless for a moment. <laughs> and, you know, we're not disagreeable when we disagree. You know, he's got his own personal story and he tells it uh, in one of his uh, autobiographies. But uh, it actually, I, it took him aback. He admitted hmm. to me later that he said, you know, you actually gave me a lot to think about. Mm. because there is a reason that christians speak you know jesus early followers some of whom were pharisees and took seriously the idea of bodily resurrection there had to be some kind of onus some kind of burden that they bore well that convinced them that resurrection was the appropriate thing to talk about and not merely vision Mm. and i think that's a very important feature
0: Well, the final verse that we were reflecting on in Acts chapter two here, Acts chapter two, verse twenty-four says, "But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him." So, what's the significance of this? Well, I think,
1: of course, they're theologizing there; they're, they're deducing. You know, what do we make of this? Um, That's right.
0: They're going from an historical event to a, and a theological claim. Yeah. You know, what's the significance of the theological claim?
1: That it, I think it's because it's an eschatological event. It's the resurrection. Because keep in mind, uh, Jesus' followers believed in a future resurrection. The Pharisees who quibbled with Jesus over points of law uh, believed in the resurrection. So if Jesus had gone around saying, someday the righteous will be raised up, people would have said, amen, that's right. There would have been nobody who, except Sadducees, perhaps. Who would have disagreed with him? But uh, to say Jesus has been raised up and then look around and say, obviously the eschatological general resurrection has not occurred. Mm. Say there there had to be. That's why I go back to this onus. There's a heavy burden to say, why, what permits us to speak of resurrection? Why can we, as it says in the book of Acts there, how can we appeal to Psalm 16? How do we appeal and say that verse, death could not hold it? This is the early church thinking it through, and they did this over a period of weeks and months, and they realized this is resurrection. It is eschatological. It is the first fruits of the resurrection. And so Jesus becomes a pledge, a a guarantee, that, that the promise of resurrection in, in the future
0: is true and will happen. Mm. So what difference has that made to your life?
1: Well, of course, it it, it gives meaning. I, I feel terrible for people who have no hope. I have some relatives and, and extended family members and so on who, they're agnostic and, uh, you know, and I've had them, you know, they tear up and just say, I don't know if there's any hope at all. And I, and I, you know, and I, and what I tell them is, you know, where I stand, you know, what I believe, I do have hope. And uh, if you ever want to talk about it, you know, we can talk about it. I'm not interested in believing silly things. I'm not interested in believing things that are rumored or have no evidence behind them, or it's third hand, fourth hand, you know, no thank you. And uh, so I like to think of myself, you know, not a hard-hearted thinker, but a hard-headed thinker who wants to know uh, what is the evidence. The evidence for Jesus is profound, it's deep. Some people say, oh, well, if he was so significant, why don't we have more things written about him? For crying out loud, there's more stuff written about Jesus in the first century than most emperors. And the emperors in the Roman Empire were top bananas. And Jesus' immediate following trumps them in most cases. So what do you mean you expect? What What else could there be, you know, uh, in the first century movement that, that you know, in the first few years were, I mean, uh, Nero, when there's the fire in 64 in Rome, okay, Christianity is just over 30 years old. And Nero is in a deep mess. Half of the city has burned down. Whether he did it or not, I don't know but it's just coincidentally burned out a section that he was hoping to renovate and turn into his new palace. So a lot of people, rightly or wrongly, were pointing at him saying, man, you did it. So he fastens the blame on whom? Christians. If they'd been a tiny unknown sect that had not troubled or disturbed the Roman elite, he would have looked for other scapegoats. See what I mean? The mm. Christians are on the radar in 30 years in the Roman Empire's capital city. I think that's very significant. So, what do you mean? Mm. Gee, if you know, if Jesus was so important, why didn't anybody talk about him? Why isn't anything written?
0: It was. What else do do you want? Mm. So, Dr. Evans. So, the more you've read and learned from your career uh, and a lifetime of reflecting on the historical Jesus. Has that made you more or less confident in the historical accuracy of the gospels and the historical basis for the christian faith
1: yeah uh, much more confident um one of the things that was really important and it touches on some of this this things that we were saying about how history is written uh and that's been just in the last 15 years uh working in this area uh pedagogy how how the teachers taught their disciples their students and how, how they expected them to learn their teaching but also historiography, how it all gets written out as a story. And there's been a a lot of important strides made in the last 25, 30 years on understanding both of those areas, pedagogy and historiography. And in understanding that, I realize, ah, that's what's going on. So this old thing about, you know, some skeptical say, well, wait a minute, it reads this way in Matthew, and it reads a little differently over here in Luke. Uh, or Jesus does something, and in Matthew it's over here, but in Mark or Luke it's somewhere else. They can't both be right. You know, that it's a naive fundamentalism. And, of course, uh, believers in the Gospels who take them seriously, who are naive, try to harmonize all this. Uh, but but uh, the skeptics are just as naive. They're just, oh, my goodness, you can't harmonize it. So obviously it's a mistake. Somebody's not telling the truth or whatever. Now that we understand pedagogy, where you're actually instructed to paraphrase your teacher, not simply verbatim by rote repeat it, and the historiography is wide open compared to what how we think it ought to be done now. We are so fixated on exact chronology and so on. That was not the way history was written. In Antio- it could be, and it, in general it was. Well, now that we understand those things better, we realize the Gospels are actually very well constructed, very well crafted, and very reliable. But you have to interpret them uh, and, and study them for what they are and not impose modern standards and ideas, in some cases, uh, that are ideas that are very naive.
0: Mm. So it's been wonderful to chat with you today, Dr. Evans. Thank you so much for your time. We are just about to wrap up. I have one more final question, the big question for today. So, Dr. Evans, how historically accurate are the Gospels?
1: Well, they're very accurate. In light of what I was just saying, uh, you have to understand uh, what they are, what kind of history they are, but uh, they're very accurate. So do we know what Jesus said? Yes. Do we know what he did? Yes. Do we know what happened to him? We do. Do we know how the early church experienced him? And I'm referring here to not just witnessing miracles, but the resurrection. There is no doubt of it. And so we have firsthand evidence in Paul's letters. We have firsthand testimony embedded in the gospels. And we have people writing the gospels who had contact with apostles, with eyewitnesses, and with reliable sources. And so, yeah, the Gospels are very reliable, and if we understand them for, you know, their intended purpose and how things were written in antiquity, there's no reason. And and archaeology, you know, continues to confirm them again and again. Every single year, the digging goes on, more stuff is dug up, more stuff shows that, hey, you know, the Gospel writers, it doesn't even make the news anymore. It has to be pretty spectacular. And I know these archaeologists, and I've worked with them. And, uh, you know, we find stuff and go, oh, yep, that fits, that's that's very similar to what Matthew says or John or somebody. And that's a routine occurrence in Israel every year.
0: Let me leave you with some of the Bible's answer to the big question, how historically accurate are the Gospels? From Acts chapter 2, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. This man was handed over to you, and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Many thanks to our guest today, Professor Craig Evans.
1: Thank you, Robert. Good to be with you.
0: Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.